0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. my pleading Word of the Lord. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And now to verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen.
1: Let's ask the Lord's uh, grace for us as we come to his word. Lord, it is an awesome thing to speak of you and as our judge, and yet there is comfort in it. For as we have sung, the very one who stands as our surety, the very one who, Paul says, is at the right hand of God, who has died for us and who intercedes for us, who presents himself, as we read in Hebrews, on our behalf, always making intercession for us. He is our righteousness. He is our judge. Oh, Lord, we thank you that the very one who suffered for us and died for us is the one that we face, the one in whom we have life, the one in whom with whom we will reign forever. Lord, we, we praise you, and we ask that you, by your Spirit, would give us grace to understand your word this morning. As Peter says, many of the things that Paul says are difficult to understand. And so, Lord, give us grace that we would think through and, and receive this word as, as you give it to us. Bless me, bless us all, Lord, you alone, are our teacher, you alone, O Holy Spirit, can fix the word in our hearts and cause us to live it out and believe it and manifest it. We thank you that you will so do it according to your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Generally, we like to think about judgment As little as possible. Actually, in the New Testament, it's spoken of a lot. It's spoken of a lot in the Old Testament. And it's interesting here in this passage that Paul says what to many people is a difficult thing. And and it's interesting to hear, read some commentaries about it, that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus according to my gospel. That it is a part of my good news that I proclaim that Jesus Christ is the judge of the world. And even there that he can say he will judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. Now to be able to contemplate that he will judge your secrets and to contemplate that with a positive expectation is a remarkable thing. I believe that this passage is speaking in the positive, that there is a positive outcome. And I hope it will be comforting to you that in the midst of your struggle to obey him, in the midst of your conscience uh, struggling, that this can be put in the very light of judgment and there's a good outcome for those who are in Christ Jesus. We generally think of judgment as little as possible because I think we don't understand our acceptance in Christ. We don't understand our relationship to God. And we tend to be like two guys that are on the coast and a category five hurricane is coming and they're not moving. And they sit there and tell each other kind of nervously, it's it's probably not going to hit, is it? No, it's probably not going to hit. It's not. Let's do anything about it. And they they just decide they're going to play Monopoly, you know. If they just keep playing Monopoly and they play it loud enough and get, you know, into it enough, maybe the hurricane won't hit. Ridiculous, isn't it? But many of us, that's the way we treat it, and certainly in our culture, the worst thing you can do, the most unpopular thing you could do, is to talk about judgment. It's interesting that Paul, in speaking to the pagans in Athens, is when he got to that section of the sermon, so to speak, past talking about how God has made you and you live and move and have your being in him. And then he speaks of judgment through one that God has raised from the dead. Judgment through this resurrected man. What a way to start the gospel. By the way, let's let's start talking about Christ. He is Lord and he's going to judge the earth. And he indicated that that's true because he was raised from the dead. And that shows how prominent, how fixed this teaching is, how it is, as Paul said, according to my gospel, that Jesus Christ will judge the world. And of course, if you came to that house uh, the next day and you saw that the house was gone, and you said, gosh, that's where uh, Darwin Jordan used to live. Yeah, he used to live literally. <laughs> He's not living anymore. He stayed in the house. He ignored everything. And you can't ignore judgment. It's interesting. I don't know what's going to happen to any one of you today, tomorrow, the next. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't, I don't know where you might be a year from now. You don't know where I might be. You don't know our condition. You don't know if you'll die or not. I don't know. We don't know anything. You know, you know you will face judgment. It's the one certainty of your life. Jesus may come before you die. You may not die, okay? Jesus may come before that. But you will face judgment as a human being. We all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And and He will render to each one of us according to our works. So, this uh, passage that we're about to get into... Is a controversial passage, and there's been a disagreement for only 2,000 years so far, uh, about this passage. And it's interesting, there's a, a list, a short list of, of great men like Augustine and Luther, uh, who've even talked about changing their minds. I read another guy named Watson who, uh, he gives a footnote of the other view And the other view was from a book he had written years earlier. You get it? (laughs) So he said, if you want to consider the other view, look at what I wrote several years ago. (laughs) And so all of you are thinking, well, then how can we begin to think that you will even understand it, you know, if this is the case? And that's a good point. And uh, I will say also that I'm... I'm taking what could be known as the, less, uh, the lesser view, the view that fewer people have taken. But it is the view that as I read through it uh, in the English Bible and then I read through it in the Greek and then I was convinced of it more and more. And so I will teach you this view. And, but there is another view and, and you'll hear that and why I don't think it's right. And I hope that you'll gain a lot of comfort from uh, this passage Uh, but it may come out very differently than how you've seen it before. So, three things I want you to consider. First of all, this passage teaches that obedience is a have-to. Okay, I'm not using the word necessity, but I'm just saying it's a have-to. Obedience is a have-to. Secondly, heart renewal is a have-to. And that's God's work that must be done in our hearts. And if He doesn't do a work in our hearts there's not going to be any change in our life. It has to be inward, it has to be real, it has to be sincere. In this passage, it's spoken of in terms of the law, the work of the law written on our hearts as believers. Later in the uh, chapter, which I think is the the, uh, sister passage, in parallel to 12 through 16, is 25 through 29, where there he says the uh, those who are circumcised of heart, And and, uh, he says in verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. But he puts it this way in this passage of the law being written in their hearts. So right off the bat, we're hearing Old Testament promises. Jeremiah 31, I will write the law in my hearts. Or Ezekiel, I will renew their hearts. I will put my spirit in their hearts. Uh, Or the promise in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 30 which is cast in the idea when you return to the land and I renew you as a people, he says, I will circumcise your heart. So those ideas of the circumcision of the heart and the renewal of the heart, the the law being written on the heart, is uh, prominent in both of these passages. So obedience is a have-to, but heart renewal is a have-to, and then finally, heart judgment is a have-to. Your heart will be judged. Your secrets will be judged. Your inner life will be judged. So it's a serious passage. Obedience is a necessity. Heart renewal is a necessity, especially in the light that it is your heart that will be judged in the final day. Now, often in Scripture, it talks about judgment in terms of your works. As as you'll see in this very passage, works are prominent. But you get also from other passages the fact that this obedience stems from an overall renewal and an obedience that's based on faith in Christ, trusting God's mercy. Okay, but first of all, then, obedience is a have-to. It's very important to see the line of argument in Paul, and I think this is where a lot of interpretation has gone wrong in uh, chapter 2. It's interesting, as one uh, person says, (laughs) chapter 2 is usually just kind of shot through. It's not touched on in historical exegesis as much because after the very interesting chapter 1 and the sinfulness of Gentiles, kind of eager to get onto chapter 3 and forgiveness, and 2 is just kind of lost uh, by the wayside. But many are beginning to think that chapter 2 holds a key, uh, one of the keys to understanding Paul's uh, teaching on the law and his teaching on judgment. So it's, it's very important for us to see what, what he's doing here. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started in chapter 2, and I pointed out that he is going after the Jew in this passage. From, I think, verse 1 all the way to verse 29. And I think that's why in chapter 3, verse 9, he can say, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Chapter 1, he's, he's dealt with the Greeks and the Gentiles. Not to the total exclusion of the Jews there, but that's the emphasis. And you have to bear in mind, too, that what he's doing here, as I've said before, is likely how he approached the gospel in the synagogue. Because he is presenting before the Roman church his gospel, the gospel that I have proclaimed all throughout the Mediterranean basin, And that gospel, almost without fail, was done first in the synagogues. And so he's giving them the gospel that he proclaimed in the synagogue. In fact, one more liberal critic who is not wild about chapter 2, okay? I love chapter 2. But he, recognizing its unique feature, says, Ah, it's just an old synagogue sermon. Okay? Because he recognizes how much it addresses the Jew, and the, the issues of the Jew of that day. But we'd say, yeah, it is an old synagogue sermon, but it has absolute relevance. It is his gospel. It is a good synagogue sermon in that regard. And his, what he's, he's doing as he's already laid out the sin of the Gentiles, now he's turning to the Jew and say, don't think that this judgment that falls on them does not fall on you as well. Remember what I said—that the Jews thought that they had a free pass. You know, they had a group discount, so to speak, in Judgment Day. And because they belonged to the people of God uh, outwardly, because they were circumcised, because they sat and heard the law week after week, because they uh, went through the rituals and obeyed the dietary laws, it was a, there was a fierce concern to stay separate from the Gentiles. And it was thought that the Gentiles are going to fall under judgment. Judgment will be more severe on them, even if we do the same things, because we're the people of God. And so, in fact, what had happened among the Jews, especially in the leadership, but what happened was that they had no real regard for heart obedience. They lax in their obedience as one has said, many times you'll hear this, they'll say, there's a Jew in every one of us, which means there's a Jew trying to earn his way to, 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 to salvation. But another element that's prominent in Judaism, and God put it this way, it's not so much the Jew in every one of us, it's the Adam that's still in the Jew that Paul's pointing out. Because in this passage, he's talking about their disobedience to the law from beginning to end. And he's holding up the difference between their disobedience and the Gentiles' obedience through Christ. That's why I think he says at the end of this chapter, you're physically circumcised, but the one who keeps the law, who from the heart is fulfilling the law, verse 27, he's going to condemn you because you have circumcision, but you break the law. And then he goes on to explain how this happens. He says, because there's a renewal of the heart that has to happen by the Holy Spirit. And you Jews are refusing that renewal. You've turned your back upon it. So the argument, you see, is it's all about their disobedience. And that's why he talks in verse 4 about their lack of repentance. They have a hard and impenitent heart that marks the jew at this point that's why it says in uh, matthew uh, I'm, I'm sorry mark chapter 3 verse 5 when jesus is about to heal a man with a withered hand on the sabbath the the jewish leaders are gathered around just 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 like this i bet you i bet you he's going to heal him on the sabbath just watch just watch had no concern for the man did they they didn't love him they didn't care about him they didn't care about his withered hand for that matter, they hated the man. He was an abomination. He was a reason that he can't know God because he's, he's mutilated. And it says, Jesus looked into him and he was grieved because of the hardness of their heart. See, outwardly, they were saying, we really obey the law. We follow the law. We follow all the details. Inwardly, that's what the law was really about, which all along was love to God and love to people. Nowhere close. Utterly disobedient to God. Utterly unlike God. Because God is love. And so, their hardness of heart, their refusal to repent, their lack of even thinking they needed to repent. This is why, as I said a couple of weeks ago, Stephen, in preaching to the Jews, right before he was stoned in Acts 7, says, You are a stiff-necked people uncircumcised of heart. There's a modern New Testament prophet proclaiming to these Jews, here's your condition, you're uncircumcised of heart, you're hardened in your refusal to give yourself up to the obedience of God, to love God and to love people. This word for hardness there in verse 5, your hard and impenitent heart, uh, scleroteta, you, we know it from arteriosclerosis. At least some of our medical people know that. Hardening of the arteries. Well, Paul is saying you have cardiosclerosis. Your heart is hard. You're impenitent. Unrepentant. So they're surrounded by it all. The law, circumcision, Sabbath, dietary requirements. But they're a burned out husk. As, G- as, as Jesus himself said, "Your whitewashed sepulchers. Oh yeah, so much looks good on the outside, but there's nothing of substance. There's no true holiness. There's no true obedience. There's no true love in your heart. And it shows itself in their rejection of Christ. If you do love God, if you do trust yourself to Yahweh, and then Yahweh manifests Himself in this glorious way, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament symbols, and here He is in the flesh, and you reject Him, it's an indication... You really didn't love God, did you? You really didn't trust God. Because when God showed up and manifested Himself perfectly and gloriously, you hated Him and you rejected Him. It's no different than they felt about God, really. It's just revealed what they thought about God. And so, what he's saying to the the Jews is, don't think that this judgment will not land on you because of your disobedience. And so, in verse 6, you see, his point is, he will render to each one according to his works, Jew or Gentile. If you live in a a, a fundamental obedience and uh, obedient gratitude, And you seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But if you're self-seeking and don't obey the truth, we talked about how that word uh, not obeying is just characteristic description of the uh, Jews. As in chapter 10, verse 21, they're unbelieving or, or disobedient. This is just a characteristic treatment of them. And so he's, he's pressing it so that by he, the verse 9 he says, so look, there could be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. You're not going to be excluded. You imagine the weight of this in a synagogue to pull them in in agreeing that, yes, the Gentiles should be condemned, the Gentiles should be condemned. And then to turn and say, now, let's talk about you. That was apparently how he approached proclaiming the good news in the synagogue. To say, the judgment that's falling on all of creation will fall on you as well. Don't think you're excluded from it. So, verse 11. Now, there are are four fours coming up, okay? F O U R F O R. Four fours. So, all of this is connected. He says all of this verse 11 why because God shows no impartiality no partiality for all who sin without the law will perish without the law okay every Jew agrees yes if you're without the law you've got no hope without the law you're without hope at all you will fall under judgment here's the clincher though here's the part he's driving at and all who sin under the law will be judged by that law not protected by that law not in a plastic bubble because you're in that law. No. He turns it on its head. You'll be judged by that law. And the indication is that your judgment will be all the more, not less. Because you have that law. And then he's driving it home f- further in verse 13. Why is that the case? For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Here is just the, the standard word for hearing the... Every Sabbath, the law, hearing, sitting there, all the time at worship. It's not those who sit there and hear it. It's the doer of the law who will be justified. And when he says justified here, he's not talking about in your initial acceptance of God. He's speaking of that final day when it will be declared you enter into heaven or don't. And every time you see that scene in Scripture, it has to do with how you lived your life. And if you trust in Christ, your life will take on that shape and it will manifest itself in that last day. And if you don't, and if you turn away from Him, your life will manifest a different look in that day. So he says here, the doers of the law will be justified. So again, he's following what he began uh, with earlier in the chapter, you think that you're not included in this judgment, but you are included because there's no partiality. If you don't have the law, you're judged. But if you do have the law, you're still under judgment. More judgment, you're judged by the law. Because it doesn't matter if you've heard it. It matters if you're obeying it. It matters if you're living it out and you're not. That's what he's saying to the Jews here. It's the same word of Jesus in John thirteen seventeen. You know these things, you'll be happy if you do them. Or James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, he makes it very clear. Blessed, not if you hear it and forget it, but blessed are you if you hear it and you live it out. It's always the message of Scripture. Obedience, following after Him. That's why Paul can describe it in this way in Romans 6, verse 17. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There it is. Obedient from the heart. Has overtones of, later on in this chapter, circumcision of the heart. Law being written on the heart. You see, inside out obedience. Whole life obedience. And that obedience is what God brings about in our lives, that transformation. And so, grace is not, quote, comfort that it doesn't matter if I obey or not. That is not grace. Please, that is not grace. Ah, oh, now I've got the comfort and I don't need to worry about obedience anymore. That's, that feels good. That, that's our sinful response to grace. Grace. And if that's the whole of your life response to grace, that's an an apostate response to grace. That's, That's a response in which you're perishing. If it's just an opportunity of relaxing so that I can do whatever I want to now. But grace is the context of forgiveness and power to give yourself to obedience. This context in which, by His grace, you have forgiveness and acceptance and a new life in Christ by which you can hurl yourself into obedience. That's grace. And that's how grace operates. So that from the heart, we give ourselves up to Him to obey Him. And in that final day, it will be recognized. Now, here's the hard part, verses 14 and 15. And here's where I take issue with some commentators. And they would take issue with me. Uh, verse 14. So we, we've talked about uh, obedience is a have to, but renewal of the heart is a have to. He says in verse 14 when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Now, this word, uh, phusis, by nature, here, is a tricky word because it falls right between the two phrases. Okay? It falls right between the two phrases. And it just as easily can be taken like this. This is how I would take it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, comma, do what the law requires. That gives a very different reading. This word, uh, phusis, by nature... If you look at how it's used in scripture, it describes not something somebody does, so that by nature they do, it describes the new con- a condition or a status of a person, many times in terms of their origin. For instance, a familiar verse that you know is we were by nature children of wrath. Okay? Ephesians 2:3. Or Paul says in Galatians 2:15 we who by nature are Jews. its By birth, our origin is Jews. By birth, we're children of nature, uh, of, of wrath. Or later in Romans 11, verses 21 and 24, he talks about by nature we're either of the olive tree of the Jews or we're wild olive tree of the Gentiles by nature. But here's where you really see it talking about How what somebody is by nature, because it's used in this very context. Verse twenty-seven: He who is circumcised by nature uh, is uncircumcised by nature. It's used right there in the context. So it's talking about those who, by nature, by birth, are either uncircumcised, or here in verse fourteen. Those who by birth or by nature don't have the law. They're basically saying the same things. Those who are not Jews. By nature they're not circumcised or by nature they don't have the law. But he says, here's the thing that I'm throwing in a sense in your face, O Jews. You who do not obey the law, but you've got to obey the law and and show that you have been one who's obedient to the law when you stand before God. Now I'm bringing before you those that are outside that law, but they keep the law. And it's the same kind of language as is used in verses 25 and following. Because he says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uh, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He who is physically uncircumcised, but he keeps the law. And what's the context? Well, later he says in verse 29, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. So, what he's doing is setting before the Jews, the, in both of these passages, 25 through 29 and 12 through 16, I'm convicting you by showing you there is a group of people that don't have the law, that aren't circumcised, that are beginning to obey and fulfill that law. And it is to your judgment. It is to your condemnation. He says it specifically in verse 27. Those who keep the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and you have circumcision, but you are living in disobedience. And this falls in line with what Paul says in Romans 11 that he's going to do with the Jews he says in if you turn over to Romans 11 verses 13 and 14 I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as, as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them and I've always thought that was kind of an odd thing that Paul said. You know that he's he's seeking to make the, his fellow Jews jealous by presenting his ministry of the Gentiles. Here he is doing it in this old synagogue sermon, coming before the Jews and saying, "The Gentiles do have a renewal of the heart; they are circumcised of heart." And this is all the more important because the Jews of that day saw themselves still in exile. Okay? Because the renewal had not occurred. The political situation had not been transformed. They see themselves in exile. And so in the promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the promise that was attached to the the redemption of Israel was in that day. Unlike the old covenant where you disobeyed me, in the new covenant I will write my law in your heart and you will keep my word. Or in Ezekiel, in this new covenant when I bring you together, I will put my spirit in you and I will make you careful to follow in my footsteps. Or as I've said already in Deuteronomy 30, in the renewal I will circumcise your heart so that you'll love me with all your heart, soul and mind. And so he is presenting to the Jews, get this, Hey, redemption from exile is happening now. The law is being written into the hearts of God's people. The uncircumcised are circumcised of heart. I announce to you that the exile, the release from exile has come. What a message. What a message to the Jews to show that This law now is being written on their hearts, as he says in verse 15. And then uh, you can see the connection. There's more to say about how, uh, well, for instance, the contrast between their thoughts in verse 15, accusing and excusing them when in chapter 1, verse 21, their thoughts are only dark and futile. It's a huge change that's occurred as he describes in every other place Gentiles of being darkened and futile in their imaginations and their thoughts using the very language that is here. And yet now their conscience is bearing witness and these thoughts are engaged in enabling them to obey. And some people think, well, you have thoughts that are accusing you, excusing you, you couldn't be a Christian. What? What? Is any believer here say that, you know, when I became a Christian, I stopped having thoughts that accuse me anymore? I stopped worrying about what I was doing right or wrong. If you're like me, I really began thinking about what I was doing right or wrong. More and more and more. In fact, it's a real comfort to see that the result of the work of the law written in their hearts is that your conscience is made tender. Your conscience is made sensitive. Your conscience is is engaged as as never before. And so uh, the conscience is seems to be the most private of things, but as we see, it's going to be the most public of things in that last day. But here, just the encouragement that uh, when you have these, that your conscience is at work, it's part of the New Testament transformation. As Paul says in Galatians 5, the flesh strives against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Or as he says in Romans eight thirteen, that we're to be putting to death always the deeds of the flesh. Those who are alive are those who are consciously always putting to death sin in their life. That's the mark of your being alive. So here we have this, this uh, evidence of the work that is occurring in their life. Obedience is a have-to, but spirit renewal or heart renewal is a have-to. And that's a work of God that He must do. So that the work of the law is now written on their hearts. And uh, the results are showing it themselves in their lives. So that when the law is written on the hearts, it you might say it sets up shop there. And it assesses and it weighs and it speaks and it announces. It's not a bystander. It's not a silent player or partner. When God puts his word in our hearts and the promise of Jeremiah 31, things start happening. Things start happening inside of us that are wonderful. But then he ends by saying also that these thoughts... He suddenly changes from the privacy of, these, of your conscience to, right in verse 16, on that day when... This is so abrupt, some people... In fact, if you have an NIV, you'll see a parenthesis from 14 to 15. Because some people say, well, it must, that must be a parenthesis. It must relate to verse 13 when he was talking about judgment. Because it doesn't make sense right there. But I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's glorious. Because it says that the drama that's set on the stage uh, that, that seems to be the most private of things is now a drama that's set on the stage of God's judgment. You think it's a private showing, you know, in your own living room, but you realize, no, it's on a screen that's being viewed by the whole country. Can you imagine that? You're like watching this home movie of yourself doing something stupid and you find out that was run on YouTube, you know, <laughs> last week. Um, that's the idea here. But I want, I want to comfort you in this, this heart judgment that occurs. Because it is not negative. He doesn't talk here about what he does earlier in verses 8 and 9, or that there's going to be uh, wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. He talks about that earlier. For those who do not give themselves up to Christ's will, God's will. He talks about it in verse 12 when he says, those who've lived a life of sin without the law or lived a life of sin with the law, they're going to be judged, they're going to be condemned. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's just saying that that work on the conscience, that work of the law that causes these thoughts that uh, they live by, they're going to be showing those thoughts, as it were, in judgment day. Immediately... Our inner life is thrust into the majestic light of the judgment of Christ. The judgment of the inner life. Listen to another passage, and then we'll we'll close very soon. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that speaks of this same thing. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So judgment is rendered according to deeds, but it's not just some outward show of deeds. It's connected to who we are. Who are we in relationship with? What are our... What are our very thoughts and purposes of our heart? What are our desires? And it's so encouraging because many times we think, you know, if I have conflict in my mind, if my conscience is bothering me about something and I repent, and it seems like I'm always facing another sin in my life, how can I be a believer? Well, this passage talks about that. It talks about the renewal of heart, and the result is this struggle that occurs within And he says, but in the day of judgment, in the day of judgment when he judges the secrets of men, because his argument to the Jews is, you are not obeying God, but there are Gentiles who are obeying God. And they're going to stand in that day of judgment. That's the implication in verse 29. Here's a true Jew. Here's the one who will be saved in that final day. The one who's been renewed of heart by the Spirit, not one who's just outwardly a Jew. And so, as um, John says in 1 John chapter 3, if our heart condemns us, 1 John 3 verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. You can live your Christian life in full struggle, obeying, failing, Renewing yourself, repenting, giving yourself up to Him day after day after day is a struggle. It is a struggle. That's our life in Christ. And yet, all of this can be done with full realization that this struggle itself will be presented in that day as I will be rendered what I have done in this life. It shows you that your faith in Jesus Christ has to be real. It's not simply trusting Him only for the forgiveness of sins as though your obedience in your life at that point doesn't matter. But as you give yourself up to Him to be forgiven, you give yourself up to Him and say, I'm yours, I want to do your will. You won't do it perfectly. But that is a part of your life. That you give yourself to Him for obedience. I love this passage that I... I came across in my study this past two weeks from Psalm 62. And it pulls two things together, and I'll leave you with this, that we don't usually think go together. Psalm 62, it says this, To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render it to a man according to his work. You ever put those two things together? You'll render to each one of us according to your work. You know Because you're a loving God and it shows itself in your righteous judgment. Our only hope in coming to God is to trust in the work of Jesus Christ by which all of our sins are forgiven. By which we are made acceptable in Jesus Christ. And as we are made acceptable in him, we are transformed as well. And we are set on a new road and a new path. It's not a perfect path, but it's a deliberate path. It's a path in which we give ourselves over to obedience. And we struggle. And our thoughts are engaged in it. And the law is written on our hearts. And it shows itself. And it shows itself. And it shows itself until that final day. How glorious that God will take anyone here who trusts Him. And He will transform your life in forgiveness and renewal. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being your people, the privilege of being renewed, of having your law written in our hearts, of having heart circumcision, so that we might love you with all of our heart, so that we might be set free from our lack of love, our, our self-orientation. We thank you, Lord, that you raise us up from the dead. As Paul says in Ephesians uh, 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath, but because of your great mercy, the great love that you had for us, you raised us up to new life in Christ. And you have made us, we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is your grace and mercy in our life. You've transformed us in Him. Oh Lord, if there's anyone here who is casual about obedience casual about their thought life, casual about growing in grace, casual about putting sin to death. Oh, Lord, may every one of us cry out and say, Save me, Lord. Save me. Truly enable me to taste of your grace and your forgiveness and to know your acceptance so that I will give myself up in obedience to you. Oh, Lord, we know we'll never be perfect, but make us sincere, make us real. And we thank you that in that final day, you will present us as a finished product, glorious and beautiful off your holy assembly line. And that we will be blameless without sin in that day. And, oh Lord, it will be shown that you conquered us and claimed us and cleansed us and constructed us and changed us and finally completed us. Oh, we thank you that your hands are on us and that we are your workmanship in Christ Jesus. Amen. The pleasing scene
0: is clouded with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. my lord my life my light oh come with blissful ray. break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away oh, won't you chase my fears away